I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, can I help you find something? Librarians specialize in helping you find what you were looking for and sometimes what you didn't know you were looking for. Thank you for joining me as I talk to my guests about all things library, including the books inside them. I'm Julie Chavez, and this is Ask a Librarian. Meg Medina is a Newbery Award-winning and New York Times best-selling author who writes picture books, middle grade, and young adult fiction. Her works have been called heartbreaking, lyrical, and must-haves for every collection, and I concur. She lives with her family in Richmond, Virginia. Alexis Rome is the author of two novels and two books of poetry and has translated into Spanish 13 young adult novels, two memoirs, and more than 50 picture books. He has written songs for award-winning composer Paquito de Rivera and writes daily in Spanish about Cuba, literature, and other chronic pains at his website, which is linked at juliewriteswords.com slash podcast. Just click on Alexis's picture. Here is my conversation about translation and all things Cuba with Alexis and Meg. Hello, my friends. I'm so happy you're with me today. Welcome, Meg and Alexis. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. And I should say uh, mucho gusto because we're just meeting for the first time, and I'm so happy you're here to talk about books and translation and really about words, which is like my favorite topic of all time. So thank you for being here. I just wanted to start off with asking both of you, so I just kind of want to hear where you are in your, how you got to where you are today, right? Let's start with your first childhood memory, like you being a baby, and then we'll just run all the way up to today, and that should just pretty much fill up the time. We'll be good to go. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) Yes. Start with the saddest childhood memory. Start there, and then we'll really get into it. No. Meg, you are an author of so many books. I was looking at all of your titles, and how did you get into writing? I think... I got into writing because I was, I had tried every other thing Mm. and I could not find happiness, even though I, I was good at those things. I was a teacher. I, a job that I loved for 10 years. I was a development person. I wrote freelance as, as a journalist. I did lots of things that had to do with children that had to do with writing that, you know, were sort of skirting around. Okay. But that thing that prolonged interaction with your imagination, the, you know, producing something purely from your imagination and your longings and your questions, like that wasn't happening. Mm. And so the year that I turned 40, I was working at a school for kids with disabilities. And so my daughter was, my oldest daughter was a student there and it was great work. It was valuable work. But it just, it all hit me that day Mm. that I 
I was getting older and I wasn't doing what I really wanted to do. So I quit my job and I wrote my first novel. It was uh, Milagros, Girl from Away, that came out from Henry Holt. And I was so excited, you know, but unlike, you know, some authors who, who burst out of the gate and, you know, they have like this, you know, this incredible career. Right. I came out very quietly. Just and then, a tiptoe. Um, just a tiptoe <laughs> and the book is not in print anymore and all of that. So my, my climb was, was slower, mm-hmm. but just as rewarding. So that, that's how I first got into it. Yeah. Wow. What an, what a great testament to, I think that time of life is so common for many women where it is really kind of a, Oh, I have a, a fixed number here that I'm working against and I need to make sure that I'm doing what fills me with joy. And also it's, it's hard to get there just because we have so many other needs and things happening in our world. So, well, I am very glad you made that change. I'm so excited. (laughs) We'll get to talk about your books and Alexis, tell me about how you got into, now you are also an author. I am also an author. Mostly talking to you about translating today, but tell me how you got into where you are now in terms of those careers. Okay. I'm going to time myself because I am a Cuban. I am a Cuban with a microphone and that can be dangerous. Ay, Dios mío. Yeah, it sounds very dangerous. Peligro. So so I I started by writing poetry in my youth. I grew up in Cuba. And and I think I I was also writing poetry because poetry affords you a little room of interpretation. Therefore, in in a country where censorship is present and where people can suffer real consequences for the writing, poetry allowed me a little room to move about and talk about things peripherally. Mm-hmm. And so that was really my my entry point to writing. I I fled is the, the only uh, possible verb that, that I could uh, use to describe how I left my homeland in 1999. And then I arrived in, in the U.S. I sort of bumped into into translating gigs okay and uh, this translating gig turned into another translating gig and another thing and uh, the next thing I knew there was a an opening at Scholastic the publisher of uh, Clifford the Big Red Dog and Harry Potter yes that one I was it was also at the heyday it was uh, book two or three was coming out at that time yep and I applied thinking what what the worst that can happen is that they do not accept me and they right. did accept me and, and I had a job there. So I went from having a professional career in Cuba as a teacher, middle school teacher, to doing some freelance work here to then becoming, I think I started as, as an assistant editor. Okay. It's a long ladder. And then I, I think I ended as associate editor or something like that. This was in 2001. So from 2001 to 2003 or 2004, I cannot keep time uh, straight at this point. I worked there. I learned a lot about young adult and children's literature, which at that time, until that time, I loved, but I had no idea Mm. that that this could be a career for me. And then one time there was, uh, we we were expecting a series of books from a publisher in Spain and there was one, it was an alphabet series. Okay. And the, the books for H and K were really not up to up to the quality level of the series. Okay. And I said, you know what? I can write that. And it these were rhyming books. 
And these were rhyming books with the letters H and K, which are famously, uh, particularly K, yeah. difficult to find uh, good words in, in, in Spanish. So it was like uh, Kiwi Kiosco. And uh, so I did that gig and I got the credit on the books and I realized, you know, you've been you've been reading young adult and children's literature now for, for a couple of years and you love it. So one thing led to another, led to another. I want to mention a dear mentor that both Meg and I have who would who I wouldn't be here speaking with you. I wouldn't be a Meg's translator yeah. if, if I had not been given the go-ahead about two decades ago from, from Teresa Malauer when she said, hey, I want to recommend you to be the translator of another dear friend of ours, uh, Meg, our dear Margarita Engel. Yeah. And so I translated her one of her novels, uh, the one that won the Newbery Honor, uh, yes. uh, which is the, the Surrender Tree in 2007 or 8. And this really propelled a, a career that has not stopped since then. And I really am very thankful that I get to translate such wonderful, dear people who then go on and become dear friends. So thank you. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, that's so true to life. So many things happen. I mean, little by little, it's just one move and then suddenly you're positioned where you're supposed to be and that's it. So I'm glad that you found your way into it. I'm so excited. I want to start really by talking about Mercy Suarez Changes Gears. Now, I know it's a trilogy. It was it all, Did you always have that in mind for it, Meg? Or were you thinking they would just be a standalone? Yeah, no. It started as a short story in an anthology called Flying Lessons and Other Stories. It, that was an anthology that Crown put out with, um, in partnership with We Need Diverse Books. And so the only direction we had for the stories was to center a character from a traditionally marginalized uh, community. And so I decided I was going to write this little girl who was 12. Her name was Mercedes Suarez. And, you know, I, I just sort of built the character and I set it in Florida. In the story, her father and she and her father are going to spend the day painting the gymnasium to a fancy schmancy private school. And mm-hmm. she discovers that her father has traded this work for a tuition reduction. So, you know, a short story is just a glimpse into characters, right? And so right. in that glimpse, I wanted Medici to have that uncomfortable moment that I think many children of recent immigrants have when they see their parents through the eyes of of the society that they're serving, so to speak. Yes. And and that uncomfortable realization of what your parents bear for your benefit. Mm. And it's a very uncomfortable and very common sort of thing. And so I finished that story in the, the anthology. It's very successful. I think a lot, it's in lots of schools, lots of wonderful stories are, are within that collection. But I couldn't stop thinking about that character and her situation. And then when I overlaid the fact that she was 12 and in middle school, and I started to really think about my own middle school life and who I was at 11, at 12, at 13, at 14, I realized that that there was more than one book here. Then I decided it was going to be a novel. I wrote Medicine Suarez uh, Changes Gears. 
And then when I finished that one, almost the same thing happened. I said, but wait, I finished sixth grade. Now I need to really talk about seventh grade and eighth grade and land her in the place where she will begin high school and that readers can see who she is becoming. Mm. So it was a really interesting process, you know, and, and, and it, it forced me to really think about um, my own life in, in those years, my relationship to my family who were recent immigrants from Cuba, mm-hmm. um, not so recent at that point, they, they were here in the, when I was in middle school at about probably about 10 or 15 years in the country already. Okay. Although it always feels recent as Alexis can, can tell you as it doesn't matter really how long you're here. It's, it's never completely home. It's you, as much as you welcome it, as much as you are grateful for it, as all the things. Yes. Um, there is always that space, that hole. So, yeah, I, I decided to write that family from that perspective. This girl who is an American-born Cuban-American girl, as I was, in a family that has longings, and has immense love and economic, you know, troubles sometimes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what that's all, what that all looks like in middle school. So, as Alexis will tell you, this, this soup, this vegetable soup with all, all of these <laughs> things in it. So, like, when someone asks me, what are the medicine novels about? I, I always have this momentary frozen look, like, <laughs> man, you well, know. It's such I, I a brutal know. question, right? Because it is. It's about so many things. So, yeah. I don't know. I wrote them, but I have no idea. Let's move on to the next question. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's about medicine, being 12. It's about the horror of growing up. It's about being an immigrant in an immigrant family. It's about yes. economics, right? Yes. It's about what it feels like to yes. to be the tuition kid, you know, like all that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I love that answer. And I also really felt like for me, what I read in this book, this book is a lot about change too, Mm. and resistance to change. And some of the themes that I was picking up and that could be, and this is what's great, right? Readers are seeing themselves reflected in the book a little bit too. And when Mercy talked at one point about wishing she could crawl into bed with Rolly, but she couldn't anymore. Things were different and things like that, that just were so tender. This is one of my favorite books of the year. And I know I'm totally late to the party, but I, you know, <laughs> it's I, don't all know. Good. I, just, I don't know what's happening. <laughs> I, these kids, they keep me busy. I tell you. So, but I just finished reading it with my fifth grade book club. Cause I have a book club with the kids and they all loved the book. And it was so interesting to hear too, because I'll ask them, you know, what did you like? Who was your favorite character? Just those kind of questions. But what was also great about this book is there's so much valuable information about what Lolo's going through and his memory loss and that he has Alzheimer's and the interplay of, you know, they tell her enough, but then suddenly not enough. And that idea and hearing the kid's perspective on that. And one thing that one of the students said was, when Mercy was talking with Roly, and it said that he answered all of her questions. And the student said, I wanted to know what the questions were. Mm. And so I thought it was such a cool 
a cool point at what middle grade is. And like you were saying about having a trilogy and then setting her where she's becoming really who she's going to be. I think that this book speaks to that time of life where you really are becoming more aware, more aware of yourself and knowing what you need and like and want, and then differentiating from your family a little bit. So I think it just held all that so tenderly. So I can't wait to read the next two of them. I, I just thought it was so well done. So I loved it. Well, thank you. Alexis, my question for you is yeah. that, okay, so when this, we'll kind of talk about your process in it too. Mm-hmm. Oh. Alexa, off. Jeez. This is why I shouldn't record. Oh, I said Alexis. Let me mute her. Hold on. Jeez. You have another career waiting, Alexis. I am going to be very busy. Adios. Jeez. Oh, my gosh. I was like, what is happening here? Who's talking to me? Oh, nightmare. I do feel bad for every woman that's named Alexa. Like, that had to be just the worst news of all time. <laughs> okay. So, okay. and we're back. So I'll say it, Alexis, and maybe, maybe she won't listen to me. Shut up, Alexa. Perfect. So about your process. So how does this work? So did they reach out to you? So you had, had you translated other books for Meg before? Well, Mercy? this is, this is, this is again, I do want to, to acknowledge and thank our dear friend, uh, Teresa Malauer, who, who's no longer with us, Except she is in our hearts, of course. And uh, mm. she she had she had translated a wonderful novel by the one and only Meg Medina right here. She had translated a a novel uh, the previous the previous novel right. Meg, uh, are, can we say the title? I guess we can say the title, right? Yeah, yeah. Sure. I mean, sure. it, okay. you can. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's okay with me. I'll say, I sure sounds okay. great. <laughs> so, so the title the title is Jackie Delgado wants to kick your ass. Oh, love and it. that is okay, and that is that that is the novel that Teresa had translated before and uh, and I think she was actually slated for being the rightful translator of the Mercy Suarez first novel mm-hmm. even before Meg knew this was a series and uh, and then by that time she she that this was a commitment that she could no longer uh, okay. engage uh, in, but she knew and loved and trusted me, and she this was a labor uh, of love. And she said, "Okay, so I am passing on this project that I know you will you will take with uh, love, and uh, you will be now the one who's responsible for making sure that Mercy travels to Spanish beautifully." And I said, yeah. "With great honor." And so that that was my introduction into the world of A, Mercy Suarez, and B, the wonderful one and only right here, <laughs> Meg Medina. And then, and then as, as you read the book, you know that the book does not give you the choice of not loving it. You mm-hmm. have, you, there's a box and the box says, love the book, and then you love the book. And then all you have to do is, okay, how would this, how would this happen in Spanish? Mm-hmm. And uh, I was asked recently, how did you translate a specific book? And, and I said, with empathy. Mm. You, I mean, translating, translating is by, by all accounts and first and foremost, an exercise on empathy. Because you do have to get into somebody else's shoes and then have the journey of going with those shoes from those waters 
mm-hmm. but maybe salt waters into sweet water. It, it so, but it goes through empathy. empathy. Yeah, so I I inherited from Teresa Malauer. I fell in love with the book, and then the characters inhabited my mind. Mm. I I started thinking how how would mercy. And when I say started thinking, it, it's not only when I was writing. It's I right. would take my yes. dog for a walk, and I'm like, yes. how? Okay, this is how she would uh, solve this issue. This is how I, as a translator, would solve this. Starting with the title. The title is a very beautiful title in English that did not make sense translating it in a mirror fashion. Yes, I could not do Messi Suarez. Cambia las velocidades. Like that had no, there was no fun in it. Yes. Um, So I translated it as Mercy Suarez se pone las pilas, which has, that has spark. And that had as as much spark in Spanish as the English title had. And the whole point was, can you emulate the spark? Mm. And if the spark is not coming through with the original image that Meg had created, then what equivalent can I propose so that we understand that we're not translating words, we're translating ways of being and we're translating feeling and emotion. So if if what you read, if what it evokes in English can be replicated into Spanish mm-hmm. with different words, that's how you do it. Yes. So oh, I love that. Go ahead. Yeah, Meg, I want to hear. Yeah, I want to cut in because yes, I mean, I want to upvote so many things that, that Alexis is saying. Yes. Primarily for me, what I I have had my books translated by by others a couple of, of times. And what I love about Alexis's translation of my work is that he translates it into the Spanish of a Cuban household. Mm. He trans he captures that. And so if I were a Mexican woman, if I were a Peruvian woman, if I were someone else, there are different words, there's different vocabularies, there's a different cadence. So it's not, Spanish isn't a one size fits all. And so the fact that Teresa, who was also a Cuban-American woman, a Cuban woman, knew that that was very important, that, that you would find someone who would have the same word that I use for dresser or for a car or for, you know, whatever, Uh, the same uh, slang. Those kinds of things are really, were really important. And so I, I love that. And I also, in speaking with Alexis, and I hope you will go down this road, Alexis, he, translators to me are so magical, I think, because their job is to copy who you were in one language and bring it to another and then maintain themselves invisible. That's how he described it to me. And I and what I don't like when I see it happen is that they become invisible, like on the cover or in awards or when people are discussing my translated editions, right? right. Alexis spends years on these books, right? <laughs> he spends a long time, and as all translators do. Right. And so the invisibility should happen on the page, but not in the work itself. So I, mm. I'm going to turn this back to Alexis, but but I do want to just completely say that that the magic of it for me is when I can sit down and read my work in Spanish as translated by him, that I hear my tías talking to me and I hear my grandparents and I hear my mother. And that feels so important to me because especially now that my elders have, have passed away, yeah. right? And 
And my husband and I speak to each other mostly in English, even though we both speak Spanish, we speak to each other mostly in English. And there's a piece of me that feels like it's slipping away. And so when I can slip back into the pages and the language, and when I have a friend like Alexis that we can talk to each other about our lives and Cuba and everything else, it feels like a warm blanket, really. It feels like a really restorative sort of experience for me. And I think I, I, man, first, thank you so much for just saying, saying publicly what you have said to me. <laughs> what, a, what, what a wonderful, what a wonderful compliment and, and how honored I am to hear that. And I want to say that, and I think I may have said this before to you, Meg, I think of translating your work as translating it back, back to Spanish, because for me, these stories were happening in Spanish. And in fact, in fact, these stories were happening not only in, in, in Spanish. We are having this conversation in English as a product of a sociopolitical event that upended our lives. Mm. So we became exiles because of political circumstances that made me flee and made, made your parents also decide we're out of here. So so one of the things that, uh, that you were talking about, uh, Julie, before was the this notion, this pool, um, that this tension between assimilating and preserving preserving traditions sure. is something that happens to the characters, but it's all, it's also some, something that happens to you, Meg, and perhaps even to you, Julie, and to me. And I always think that these stories, all I am doing is I am bringing them back to where they belong. And by doing that, I have already, like, 87.3% of the battle is won. It's mine mm. because I am not taking them into terra incognita. They belong there. They mm. belong there. So all I am doing is what is the word that this, your auntie, would use mm-hmm. for, and that's a word that goes there. But I do not have to struggle for it. I do not have to sit down and, and fight with it because the meaning is it just, within arm's reach, because this, in my mind, this already happened in Spanish. I, all I am doing is restoring it mm. to, and, and, and Meg, you and I have spoken before about translanguaging and, uh, and the fact that you are using some Spanish already in there, that, that already reminds me, yes, this already happened, this happened in Spanish. In, in fact, yeah. when I read this, I think, in a way, the English book can also feel to me like I'm reading subtitles. Oh, interesting. I am reading subtitles. So, But this is the way in which I trick the mind. I Many years ago, I translated a novel into English. I, I translated a wonderful novel by, by Miguel Correa Mujica. The title is North of Hell. And I could only translate that novel by tricking the mind into thinking that English was not my second language. So since 2008, I have been calling English my primary language. Hmm. And then and then that has given me greater confidence. And English and I have now a closer uh, bond because I am not putting it, uh, I'm not giving it a secondary status. So Spanish is my native language. However, English is my primary language. I conduct my life primarily in English. And then when I think about life that way, 
English then does not become an obstacle anymore. And then I can go back and forth with relative ease. Okay, so I want to know what's what's the hardest thing about translating? That's what I've always wanted to know. Like, for example, I'll give you an example, Julie. Yes. I I get an email from Alexis. It's always a joy to get an email from Alexis because you don't know what it's going to say. It could be anything. This is great. (laughs) I love those emails. Who knows? Right. We all have a friend like that. It's like, who knows what's coming? So he says to me, like, these are important questions. He says, so the sprinkler system. And I said, yeah. And he goes, how do you think we should say sprinkler system? And so, like, if I said to you right now, Julie, your kids are running through the sprinkler. Yeah. You you know what that is, that yes. little yeah, yeah. right. Okay. There is no easy way to say that thing in Spanish. Right. <laughs> there just isn't. It requires like six different words strung together. <laughs> it is such a long phrase. I was like, man. So like these are the weird conversations <laughs> we have. Like he'll send me a text sprinkler system or you know, <laughs> this or you know, and uh, it's really funny because my English is my primary language. And so I I did speak Spanish first. I learned okay. English in romper room. You're too young for romper room. No, I do remember a little romper room. Yes. Okay. So romper room, back in the days of black and white TV in the 60s and so on, my mother used to park me in front of it. And she, you know, she spoke English and the kids outside spoke English. So I only spoke Spanish in the house. And then I I spoke English and participated with English through television and media and so on. And then in those days, my mother valued Spanish for all the ways that it was going to maintain my connection to my roots and identity. Yes. But the world was not a bilingual, bicultural school experience. We were thrown in, right? And so I learned English quickly and then it became supplanted. My my Spanish was supplanted by English. So I can't do, uh, despite my longing, Despite the fact that I can consume Spanish media, that I can read Spanish, mm-hmm. I don't write it well, and I certainly don't write it or speak it to the same level that I do English, and it's an eternal frustration for me. So I am very grateful for for the Teresa Mlowers of the world, the, yeah. the Alexis Romains of the world, too. But I, I love our mystery texts and things about bizarre phrases. <laughs> I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. So, Alexis, would you say that that's the hardest part of translating, or what's the hardest part for you? The hardest part? In one of the, in one, for instance, in the novel that I just mentioned, North of Hell, 
the author uses a word, and the word that he uses is tareco. Tareco. Now, a tareco would be a knickknack, right? Okay. A knickknack. Right. However, I had just fallen in love with Yiddish. I had been living, I had been living in New York yes. for maybe seven or eight years at that point. My my lovely spouse is Jewish. So we are the Jugans, by the way. So so <laughs> and and I I could have said for that particular word, I could have gone with knickknack. Right. But knickknack was lacking that special something, that tchotchke. Tchotchke. Oh, I was hoping you'd say tchotchke. Yes. Tchotchke had it. And so, so, and that moment, that moment felt like I was an illuminated being and had seen a specific kind of light that was leading me (laughs) to the path that I was intended to be. And it was that word. So when chachi, I found <laughs> really, really, it was, and I put it in there. I put it in there. But then on the other, on the other hand, that particular book has a word called pancake. Okay. And then I translated that as muffin and it falls short. Mm. It falls short. So, so, so the tension, the most difficult part is what am I getting right? And uh, what am I gaining in translation? And I've, what expense and what is it going to be lost? And yes. can I compensate? Because what I did was what was lost in 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 the transition between pancake to muffin. Mm-hmm. Then it was gained between tareco and, and chachi. So it's keeping yes. it's keeping that balance. So wow. so that that the book feels like the person who wrote it loved words mm-hmm. and uh, and the power of language. And then that the person who translated it also loved words and the power of language and knew, had the tricks to make himself disappear from, from the reader's mind. Yeah. So, so that my trick is to make you think that you're reading a, bo- a book originally written in Spanish. In that that's, that's what I aim for. Well, that is that really impressive. I'm going to have to go back and read this one in Spanish. I think I would really I enjoy that, actually. I will. You're in for a treat. You're I in would, for a treat. I would love that. And I think it's so fascinating for me to listen to you two talk about this because I'm the reverse. So I grew up speaking English, and all of my Spanish was acquired academically. I lived in Mexico for a brief amount of time, but most of it was studied. So when my kids were born, I thought about speaking to them in Spanish, but I couldn't do it because it wasn't my lengua nativa. It wasn't, I didn't have the access to the vocabulary, but also those specific words that we use that are so colloquial and really tied to, you know, especially how we speak to young children. So Mm -hmm. that idea. So it's so funny to hear you say that though, because also when I have done translating, some people translate as the person's talking and I am a lot more, I usually wait until they finish what they've said and then take the whole chunk and give that because I do it usually for teacher conferences and then I'm delivering that and that makes it a little easier for the teachers. But it's so, I had forgotten about what you're saying, which is you really do have to enter someone else's world. And in this case, you're entering the author's world and letting those characters come to you in a very similar way that they come to the author. I mean, it's just so fascinating, that replication. I also wanted to point out, too, I love in here, Meg, that you included, I think it was Abuela that said it costs an eye out of your face. 
because that was yeah. one of, that's the most, whenever I talk about false cognates, you know, I'm yeah. pointing those out to the kids. And so things like that, that they don't necessarily understand. So also you're keeping that in mind too, when you're translating, because those are everywhere. I mean, and certain things that don't make sense. That's hilarious that there's not a word for sprinkler yeah. in Spanish. Like, I love, I love that that's the thing. Well, what are we going to do about that today? I know. Well, I'll tell you how my, yeah. But my family always solved it by doing Spanglish, right? So when we get, and I, and I solve it that way too. When I get to a word that I just don't know in Spanish, I just like fling English in there. And most Spanish, most people are able to swing in that, in that way. Yes. And, and there's just so many words that even my grandmother, who was 99, who was monolingual, Espanol, el gay, right? The cake, right? She called it un gay, un, peda, un pedacito de cake. Yes. Like those kinds of things. It was, it was really, yeah. So I, I love that. I, and, and I think in the United States, when we're talking about U.S. Latinos, right? And mm-hmm. Latinos being, you know, a very broad umbrella. So yes. Uh, when we're talking about children in the U.S. from all of these various backgrounds with language, I think it's very important to honor that fluidity. Mm-hmm. And also the fact that some are not speaking Spanish and whose parents have made the decision that they should speak English for uh, complicated, painful decisions that, mm-hmm. that families make. And so I think it's just, or or that Spanish was not the tradition mm-hmm. the from from their country or their their particular tradition in their family. So I, I just feel like the fluidity of language, yes. how it's important to honor. And and I and it's true all the way like okay. So 15 years ago, who knew what a selfie was, right? We didn't yes. talk about selfies. And now everybody knows selfie, right? Mm-hmm. So I I think we have to make room and honor the elasticity of language and play with it and let it and, and follow it. You know, my mother-in-law, Javier's mom, always when, you know, when she was living to be helpful, I guess, you know, when I said un disparate, which is a crazy thing, right. happened all the time in my Spanish, she would gently correct me. And then, you know, my father-in-law might argue with her, no, because the academy in Spain, la academia, you know, some language oh academy, gosh. right? Like, Yep. that had the rule about what proper Spanish was. And it's like, I cannot follow that. I just feel like language in general, Spanish and others, evolve. Yes. And they reflect the time. There are rules. There are, there are, there's a basis to it. But I feel like we also have to allow for the expansion of the human experience. Mm. That includes language and place and displacement and dislocation in the merging of experiences. Meg, this that you have just said reminds me of uh, one thing that a student asked me a few years ago. They asked me, does this word exist? Um, It was a word that might have been either slang or slang adjacent. Mm -hmm. And my answer was, well, yes, you just said the word. Therefore, the word does exist. What you meant to say was, is this word recognized by the powers that be? And, and it, it so happens in Spanish that we have the Real Academia Española, 
which is, which is, <laughs> which is sort of, you know, ruling <laughs> the linguistic norms from not only from Spain, just that that is the Real Academia Española, but then each particular nation has its own Real Academia Nicaragüense, Real Academia Salvadoreña, each one. And there are, there are I think, 22 or 23, including one for the United States, which with 41 million Spanish speakers is somewhere between the second and the fifth country in the world, depending on, on which stat you look at, in number of Spanish speakers. So, wow. so, but what I'm trying to get here to is the notion that even making it to the dictionary, that implies a certain power. So who uses this word? And the first dictionary uh, that we have in the Spanish language was known as the Diccionario de Autoridades, which is the, the dictionary of authorities wow. in which every <laughs> single word was backed up by an authority. So this is the chair because so-and-so established that this is a chair. Therefore, we are going to call this a chair. So we, before we started recording, we were talking about socially constructed things, yep. language. It's yeah. a social construct. And so the words that we allow into the into the dictionary, the words that are considered quote unquote academic, that already that betrays that there's a dominant culture and that there are peripheral cultures and that cultures that cultures that have been marginalized. Mm. So in English, for instance, we have SAE, which is the standard American English. And then we have AAVE, which is African American Vernacular English. And why, why are some words that are pillars of the AAVE language are not making it to the SAE? This has to do with power. Mm -hmm. This has to do with who controls the access to what words are acceptable to say in a classroom setting, at a dinner table. So yeah, language is power. Mm. It's such a powerful, important topic too, because if we're talking about the, the base of our communication, this is our connectedness, right? Mm -hmm. And this idea that then you're right, that there would be a governing authority to that as opposed to you and I are communicating, and if I'm using Spanglish and you're understanding what I'm saying, then we're achieving our goal, right? And and that idea mm -hmm. of of what do we, what are we using language for, and how does it honor the people who are involved in that conversation? So I think that's just such a. There are so many layers to this, and I yeah. I love I could talk about this kind of stuff all day because I find it so <laughs> intricate and. So fascinating. My kids, I have teenagers now, and they have all sorts of bizarre slang. And I like to learn what it is and then use it to annoy them, which is super fun. <laughs> I'm sure it's very effective. Oh, <laughs> so effective. They cringe so yes, hard, which is also one of them. Yeah. The other day I said something was sus because that was from this thing, right? And my son opens his door. I mean, the door's closed. So supposedly he can't hear me, but he's always eavesdropping. He opens the door and he goes, can you please stop saying that? Just door closes again and we're done. So, but it's true, this idea that it's still, right? We're all sort of tossing it around and, but some of the things they say are ridiculous, but it's still valid. They understand what they're saying. 
and I try to understand and make it horrible for them. Yeah, oh, <laughs> I'm very proud of you as a oh, fellow mother. Oh, hey, I want to I want to say one thing about yeah, the please. translated versions also. It's so because we're talking about how we use language and, how, and yeah. so I'm I want to sort of segue into how we use translated editions, yes. right? And, and yes. so one of the things if you're an author who is trying to access both English dominant Latinos and, and Latinos from many countries who are Spanish dominant is that you're, you're trying to speak to both. They both consume media differently. They have different, you know, it's, yes. it's pretty tricky. I don't want my translated editions to sit in a silo for only use with Spanish dominant folks. Like I, mm. I feel like it's important to have these books available in your classroom for kids who, let's say, you know, when you're reading a book in the family, right? And it, whether it's picture book or middle grade, so that the different members of the family can participate in the story mm. through the language that is most comfortable to them. I think it's important for kids to be able to see examples. I think Spanish students, I feel like there's so many ways to use translated editions to promote love of multilingualism, yes. which I think would take us so far down the road of understanding each other and respecting each other more. I think it would also, I think, invite more families in, yes. more people in to the school and the reading community. So, you know, I for any teachers and, and librarians thinking about it, I, you know, I, I don't want the books sort of piled in a, you know, the Spanish language section. Or the, you know, I, you yeah. can certainly have a copy there. Sure. Yes. But I, I would also like you to, to think, what is the most interesting and impactful way that I can use this book? Like those, that's an interesting way to approach it. Who else might want to know about this book or use this book in their classroom? So, and I, I think Alexis. Yeah. Sorry. Um, continue. I, I'm can, yes. No. Can this book be read after October 16th? Can we pay attention? Can we pay attention to this work after October 16th? Meg and I and you, and you, Julie, and everybody I know who comes from the from under the Latin X umbrella. Yeah. We have a lot to say from October 16th to September 14th every single year. Every single year. <laughs> so I would I would hope for you and your work, uh, Meg, to be read not only not only outside of those silos, but also outside of those spatial silos, but also outside of those temporal silos mm. in which we're confined to, okay, this is the month in which now we pay attention to this particular community and uh, the month is over. See you next year. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So sure. I, I, I wish that for you. Here's another wish I have. Since we're getting greedy with wishes, yeah, let's just put them out there. So one of the things, when I go go into school, like one of the most lovely things is when students sort of, for the first time, sort of conceptualize, oh, wait, I could be an author, right? Yes. (laughs) You know, I could could seek this. There are other people that, that do this. So if kids love books and love story, I love opening their mind to being illustrators being authors, being librarians, being translators. And I don't think we necessarily remind them that, that the skill of being multilingual has this avenue as well. So just sort of in terms of opening a child's 
sense of possibilities mm. for themselves, I feel like translation has a, has a role to play there too. I love that perspective. And you're so right. That's been such a gift for me working in the library since I'm going through my own publishing journey is everything I learn, I'm telling them about. And that idea, we've talked about that a lot, right? Like I'm working on a picture book. I write the text. My drawing is abysmal. Nobody wants to see that. So mm-hmm. it's that idea of, hey, so this is my strong suit. So this is what I'm working with. But hopefully there's someone else who's really good at this other portion that can be brought together with me. And I am absolutely going to order these in Spanish and I will put a copy right next to them because you're so right. I had a student come in the other day and she's reading Lord of the Rings at home with her family in Russian and just very a newcomer. So she speaks very little English. And so she got Lord of the Rings in English so she could take it home. And I just thought that is so great. And you are speaking exactly to that. Like it is that visual, it's representation, right? This idea that, oh, there are people that translate these books and it's sitting right there next to it. And then that way they have that awareness without even realizing it. Oh, I'm inspired. I'm really excited about that. It's going to be good. Gosh, I really, I have loved talking this through with you guys. I just have so many more thoughts and it's so inspiring. I'm I'm so appreciative, not only of your books, Megan, what you do, but Alexis, I just love what you're bringing to the conversation about translation, because it's really listening to you. You you see it in such a beautifully holistic way, as opposed to a, I take these words and I put them into this filter and then they come out the other side. It's, it's just a beautiful way to approach it. And so I'm so glad you're, you have such care and attention with it. It's so cool to see. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. It's so I'm I'm learning how to talk with more than one person on Zoom at a time. I'm learning new skills all the time, guys. I'm growing up. I'm getting bigger. Welcome to Cuba, <laughs> <laughs> where we where we all speak at the yes. same time. Yeah. And yes, and somehow manage to communicate. Exactly. For sure. You know what? My son-in-law, who just got joined our family two weeks ago, I think he finds that very startling about us because. <laughs> We always interrupt and talk over each other and they're like in it and like there's a problem there. That's a rudeness. That's being engaged, people. Yeah. Right. We're so, talking. We're here. So so the first the first time this was now twenty-three years ago, which is how long my 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 wife and I have been together. Um, I was on the phone with a dear friend of mine wonderful writer, Cuban writer and dear friend, Enrique del Risco. I hope he gets to be translated soon into English. So I'm putting him in your map. Okay. Award-winning author in mm. Spanish, great editor, great friend. And I'm speaking with him. And uh, this is 22, 23 years ago. My relationship with my then girlfriend is still new. And she's sort of, you know, on the nearby in the room I'm somewhat concerned that I'm having a conversation with somebody and it's a very heated conversation. <laughs> and, at, and at the end of the conversation, she doesn't know who I have been speaking with. And she asks me, are you okay? It seemed like you were arguing. And I'm like, that was a joyful conversation. We were agreeing <laughs> with each other. We were, <laughs> but she <laughs> oh. these two Cubans are like duking it up. No, we <laughs> At one of my dearest friends, and we were having just we were having making common cause, but what she was hearing, and this was lost 
because translating is not only language, mm. but but signifiers. Yes. And she did not know the signifiers. It was too early in the relationship for her to know that, no, there's only no, not animosity going through this back and forth. There's love and there's appreci- appreciation and there's friendship. And it's communicated in this way. And, yes. and then I told her and she was puzzled. What do you mean? Yeah, no, no, no. That's like, I'm calling you tomorrow. and this is from the days when people would you know use the phone for conversations and that so yes i (laughs) Uh, yes i remember those days too back in the old time oh yes right with the horse and buggy when i was a child no it's so true i love those are the things you capture later about another language and about and like we were saying different between spanish-speaking countries as well too where certain inflections and the way we say things and just all of these pieces that are, yeah, it's a lot about a lot more than the words. I love that story. Oh, good. That's perfect. Now. Okay. So let's wind this down. Although, I mean, I really could go on for a long time, but <laughs> do you have a question for me? Yes. Wonderful. Meg, do, Meg, yeah. would you like to go first? Now, now are we all afraid to interrupt each other? <laughs> yes. Now we're, now we're going to be, we're going to speak be like American people. Yes. Like American people who are a little uptight. Right. Right. So, this Julie, I, uh, so I'm always intrigued because I know that podcasting seems like it's very easy. People listen to it, believe that it, because it took 45 minutes to listen to or 20 minutes to listen to that. That's all it took to make this podcast. (laughs) And, and this notion of like focusing it on books and libraries and what was it about this topic that drew you? Because this is a big labor of love in addition to being a librarian. So what keeps you at it? What drew you to it? What keeps you at it? Well, I thank you for asking. That's such a lovely question. So I have a book deal and part of that was, it's through Zibby Books and Zibby Owens has her own podcast. And so she had some of the things in place. And early on, we were talking about publicity and just early days sort of brainstorming. And I said, well, I could host something that was Ask a Librarian and people would have questions or recommendations. And it started there. And then once I started podcasting, though, I love talking to people. I I love learning. And I just find people endlessly fascinating. If you can ask them the right questions, I feel like most people have so much to share and and especially writers. And I think also even more specifically, middle grade writers don't get as much airtime, I think sometimes. And so I think once I started, I realized how much I love that. And I also talk too much as it is and kind of drive my family crazy. So this is a way for me to get out some words. So there's that too. <laughs> But mostly, I just, I have loved talking to people. And I hope that it's, you know, landing with someone and that they're getting a new perspective or finding a new read or whatever it is. So I just, I mean, the thought that I, that anyone would want to be in, have me be in their ears is just an honor. So I'm, I, I think I've really surprised myself with how much I've enjoyed it. But to your point, yes, there is a lot of back work that I did not anticipate because I'm a, my husband says that my life motto is shoot, aim, ready, instead of <laughs> ready, aim, shoot. <laughs> that same approach. <laughs> so, 
So, uh, yeah, now I, now I know a little bit more, but yeah, it's, it's been super fun. <laughs> put that in a book. Yeah. Right. Hold on to that. Put it in a Figure book. Figure that one out oh. later. Oh, that's a great question though. Thank you. Alexis. I do have a, a, in fact, I had another question and then you mentioned that you're an author. Yes. And I, and all I want to know now is, would you like to tell us a little bit about the book that you have forthcoming? And, I, uh, please. Yes. I would love to. Oh, and maybe I'll be in the market for a translator. So, I mean, I feel like we're making connections. Not not go go sponsors. No. That's right. Now I know who to call. Awesome. So my forthcoming memoir, I'm working on the, it's almost ready to go to copy edits right now. And it's the story of my recovery from anxiety and depression after I spent too long taking care of everyone but myself. So I was just shy of 40 and had spent a number of years mothering and returned to back to work actually in the library. And the title of the book is The Anxiety Library. But it was just, it was a learning curve of how do I put myself back on my to-do list? Because I had done that for a long time, putting other things there, and I'm also an achiever. So that can become quite an addictive drug. And then mm. you sort of disconnect. So, yeah, that's what the memoir is about. I'm really hoping that it will help someone else feel less alone because I think it's not an experience that's just common to me. I think a lot of caregivers and parents and just really, I think the modern world asks a lot of us over and over. So having the sense to carve out some space for yourself. So when does it come out? It comes out, it it should be, it'll be out next year for sure. So I don't have the exact pub date, but second half of next year. All right. Yeah. And then you can invite Alexis and me back and we will interview you. How about that? I can't (laughs) wait. At the hands of two Cuban American moderators. Yes. Yes. Oh, I can't wait. That is totally happening. We're doing that. That'll be a okay. Ask a Librarian part two. <laughs> Meg perfect. and Alexis. Perfecto. Okay, great. Well, so awesome. it's a date. I will uh, I will mark it down on my calendar. Also, now you're contractually obligated because you said it on my <laughs> podcast. So you have you have evidence. Perfect. Have yep. Clear your calendar. <laughs> Guys, thank you so much. This was a pleasure. Truly, I have loved talking to you and I can't wait to see what else you both have next and I'll be following you and then I'll see you next year. You sure will. (laughs) Alexis, it's always a pleasure to be with you and I'll see you next week. I will be seeing you next week. And thank you, Julie. And thank you for reaching out, Julie. I really appreciate the the time and the the chance to talk to people about all the different kinds of additions and ways to to meet Merci and certainly to celebrate Alexis's incredible work. So muchísimas gracias y cariños a todos. And I'm off to make dinner. Uh, <laughs> buenas suerte. Okay. Gracias, okay, amigos. Thank you, oh. thank you so much. Take care. Hasta luego. Yeah, gracias. Thank you, thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Ask a Librarian. As always, it's my joy to share and learn with you. You can follow me on Instagram at Julie Writes Words, or you can go to my website, juliewritswords.com. There you'll find the show notes, including all the books mentioned in the episode. See you in the stacks next week. And until then, friends, never go anywhere without a book. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.